The views and opinions expressed in this podcast may be triggering and don't necessarily reflect the views of myself or Blue Matter Project. Please note that I'm not a licensed therapist or a doctor, and all opinions of our guests are for informational purposes and should not be considered medical advice. For any questions about your own health, please consult a medical professional. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Mindful Matters podcast. I'm Elaine Clark, and joining me today is Cassandra Hope. She is a functional trauma therapist who leads with an empathetic and scientific approach to self-healing, and she's based her work on experiences from her own personal healing journey and learning from leading functional doctors and practitioners in the field of nutrition, mental health, and trauma. She's the founder of Be Well with Hope, and we're talking specifically today about conquering trauma and navigating relational boundaries. She lays out things that we can do and ways to approach boundaries and how to be more aware of our nervous system and how it's affected by traumatic experiences. And so this is a great conversation. We dive into what happens to our nervous system after trauma and how that can show up and affect our relationships. So if you're someone who struggles to set personal and professional boundaries, this is a conversation that brings understanding on how to take the first steps. So as always, thank you so much for joining us this week. Let's welcome Cassandra on the show. Cassandra, I am so thrilled to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I love being back. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, in our last episode that we recorded together, we talked all about trauma and I'm so thrilled to continue this conversation with you. I feel like we have so much that we could talk about. But first, for those who don't know your journey, can you walk us through a bit of your backstory from being a personal trainer to a nutrition coach to now a full-time functional trauma therapist. And talk to us about why being trauma-informed is so important to your mission of empowerment. Oh, good questions. Okay. Um, so first you said start with a little bit of my my journey of becoming a personal trainer to nutritionist. Yes. Okay. So um, yeah, this was interesting. In short, I would say, you know, I became a personal trainer after I had done several years of fitness competitions and I felt like I had done all that I could do with kind of that avenue. There's, there's really just like a, a point that you can't really do much more if you're not becoming like an IFBB pro competitor. So I was like, okay, I've, I've gone pro. I've won some competitions. I've lost some competitions. I've put my heart and gut and souls into this soul into this and uh, I'm ready to teach. And when I started teaching um, in the gym, it was always like, I always had a holistic kind of flair, but it was definitely still about like, we're measuring inches, we're weighing, we're using the scale, we're counting macros. And, you know, that goes hand in hand with the, the uh, competition world. And what I came to realize as I entered, you know, nutrition school to become an RHN and, and really started learning about kind of like the emotional side of why we choose certain foods and certain habits and all of that. I started to realize that all of those years as a competitor and a personal trainer, 
were really me playing out my trauma loops. Um, body dysmorphia, you know, major social anxiety and insecurities, thinking that a tighter, fitter body, you know, fake boobs, which I had taken out last year, and and just like like that kind of mentality of I want to be the best. I want to be the best. I want to support people in being their best physically. It really was rooted in me not feeling seen and validated growing up as a little kid, right? And it's unique how we choose to find ways to, you know, develop this sense of worthiness in ourselves. And it can be in, you know, oh God, all kinds of things. But for me, it was it was in personal training and um, fitness competitions and nutrition. So fast forward, you know, three, four years, five years, maybe after I graduated nutrition school, um, I went through a traumatic breakup and my whole world fell apart. And it wasn't because of the person, it was because of how it happened. He just all of a sudden one day didn't come home. And, you know, that definitely triggered my, you know, childhood abandonment trauma memories. Um, I didn't know why it would hurt so much. It hurt so much. Like I can't even put words to it. And that really began my awareness that I had an eating disorder. I was orthorexic, body dysmorphia, extreme hypervigilance. I started learning about codependency and narcissism, um, just deepening my connection to the awareness that there was something bigger going on behind the scenes as I was, you know, in practice, um, in clinic, in the gym, everything. And then realizing there's a way to re-navigate this. Like there's a way to calm the storm. There's actually science, there's research behind why people do this and how they can hack it. And that became my obsession. It became my, um, my medicine. And it ultimately afforded me the opportunity to really understand, you know, the body, the fascial network, the nervous system, digestion, everything on such a deeper level. So all of the information and education I got from personal training and nutrition coaching, when I started to learn neuroscience, it just made everything else make so much more sense. So I can explain things to my clients in a much more comprehensive way when I'm talking about over-exercising or diet, you know, that diet life or um, hypervigilance and restrictive eating. Like there's so much more that I can bring to the table in my coaching container now, um, with the neuroscience awareness of trauma. Yeah. I can relate to you in so many ways. And, and I, I love that you have pulled together these fundamental and really important aspects of health because we really can't separate, you know, the mind from the body. And then we also have to always consider, you know, our, our attachment styles from childhood and how that affects our behaviors in, in, you know, in present tense. Um, one of the, one of the things that I recently saw, I was watching a video that you released, which for our listeners can find on your Instagram page over at be well with hope. You touched on some really important topics and I could feel you, I could feel your sense of conviction and your no-nonsense nature, which is something I really appreciate about you. And one of the things that you talked about was how lack of connection 
can reorganize our nervous system and can lead to trauma. And this is such an important topic, especially as we continue to move through this pandemic, but also because I think people have a certain image or a stereotype in their mind about what being traumatized looks like. What can you say about this? Yeah, it's funny. Actually, just before we hopped on this podcast together, I was writing my module, my next module for, um, I'm doing a trauma-informed practitioner training right now. And this one's on the pathology of trauma. So how trauma shows up in the body. And one of the modules is on um, how our cellular membrane health becomes dysregulated or injured uh, when we're traumatized whether it's a physical trauma, like a physical injury or um, mental emotional trauma and, and how that actually happens, like what the mechanism of action is. So to kind of like simplify it, when we think about the cell that keeps our DNA protected, right? Our DNA being, we want our DNA to be, um, you know, expressed in the most ideal way. And that's when like mental health is on point and we've got autoimmune disease at bay and chronic pain and chronic fatigue is at bay, right? We've got a really good cellular membrane. Well, let's say we have this really beautiful cellular membrane and then we go through a pandemic. Okay, let's just use that since we're on that topic. Our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system has developed over hundreds of thousands of years to thrive and feel safe and function optimally when we're in community, right? Because it knows that without community, we're at more risk, more risk of death via getting attacked or lack of food, lack of love. Like we on a chemical research based level need connection in order to actually survive. This is well-documented. So when we think about the environment of the cell, all of a sudden being exposed to neurochemicals that are upregulating because the body's going to upregulate neurochemicals that are stress-based, adrenaline, cortisol, et cetera, when we're at risk of death, right? So there's this subconscious recognition that I don't have anybody around me. Guess what? The nervous system, whether you're aware of it or not, the nervous system's going to go into defense mode and start secreting chemicals to fuel this potential of you not surviving. And that changes the environment of the cell, that changes the extracellular environment of the cell. So not only does that exposure to those upregulating chemicals create a leaky cell, also what ends up happening through this chronic stress is we become more vulnerable to infections, co-infections, latent infections, mold, Lyme, heavy metal toxicity, et cetera. And that's when we see people develop chronic illness. So, you know, the conviction that I have that we need connection, we need to be touched. We need to eat with people. We need to wake up and go to bed and know that there's somebody that is waiting to see us and vice versa. That really helps to balance the chemicals that are being secreted when we're going about our day-to-day -day function. So, you know, it's one thing in theory to say when we're, when we're distanced from people, when we're forced to have this separation, 
there's only so much yoga and breathing and clean eating that will keep our cells regulated, right? We literally need human connection to stay balanced and, and, and homeostasis to take place. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, trauma is really about not being seen and acknowledged or heard or not having a voice. And as a result, we can go back into this place of confusion and unworthiness and often we'll wait for someone to fix us or, you know, we'll show up in our relationships with, without that sense of worthiness. And this sort of ties into the, what I wanted to talk about with you next is was about boundaries. And I think boundaries is something that we could, that can become very challenging when we're, uh, when we have a past trauma or if we're moving through a current, uh, traumatic experience and being nice is wonderful, but overgiving and overpleasing at the expense of our mental health is not being nice. It's actually dishonest and can harm our relationships and ourselves. And this is something I've personally learned the hard way over the years. I've definitely had the experience of being a boundary disaster, <laughs> overgiving, overfunctioning, overpleasing, and it's come back to bite me in the butt time and time again. So I want to dive into the topic of boundaries. Um, t talk to us a little bit more about boundaries. Yeah, it's um, it's really, I think it's funny. Like, let's say we're raised in a home where boundaries, you know, there's a, a spectrum of boundaries, let's say, that we might experience in any house. And it could be from a completely boundaryless home to one that's hyper boundary and both can be traumatic. We want to be somewhere, you know, in the middle with healthy, healthy communication, nonviolent communication, uh, very conscious kind of taking responsibility for our emotion, not projecting all of, all of that, you know, the art, it's like an art form, you know, implementing healthy boundaries. So a lot of us you know, we learn based on what we model in our in our early formative years. So if we didn't grow up in a home where we saw people implementing really autonomous, non-codependent, conscious language, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. nonviolent communication type boundaries, um, we're really just using what we have available to us. So that could be a lot of projection, a lot of yelling, a lot of blaming, a lot of, um, you know, all of the things that create kind of inflammatory relationships. And I think the first step is in having the awareness that we haven't been, you know, communicating our boundaries in an ideal way. And that takes vulnerability. And depending on where you lie on the post-trauma emotional scale, like some of us land a little bit more on the narcissistic side and that's okay. It's totally normal. You know, it's not ultimately where we want to live, but if we are more on the narcissistic side, it can be really difficult to admit or to be present to the fact that we have work to do with our communication and our boundaries. And on the other side, if we're on the more like fawning, um, leaky boundary to empathetic side, it can feel like we're dying to implement like like death is on the other side of a boundary. Because again, we're going back to that evolutionary theory of we need connection to survive. So on an automatic, autonomic level, 
the nervous system, depending on which personality traits you encompass more, can really trigger more trauma, right? So we really, it's a, it's like a slow process where we dip our toe into the boundary pool where, you know, we practice implementing boundaries with safe, safer people, right? Maybe with our therapists, maybe in a weekend course, like an immersion course, maybe um, practicing a script that we download on online with a friend who you know, hey, I can role play this with somebody. This alone is going to change and reorganize the nervous system. As we start to um, implement boundaries with safer people, it'll build our confidence to do it with more unsafe people. And this is a process, right? Like if you were raised in a home where expressing your needs and your boundaries led to physical violence, isolation, maybe, you know, you went to bed with no food, you were boxed out and iced out of the family. Um, be patient with yourself, right? Like this, this is a, a relearning, a reorganization of the nervous system and it takes time, but it can be learned just like anything. Our brains are so neuroplastic, you know, the fear of boundaries can become ultimately the most favorite thing right? Like I love implementing boundaries. Now I look forward to it. And that was not the case just a few short years ago. Yeah. When I started to learn how to set boundaries, I had such a desire to always take back the boundary. And I think a lot of people can relate to the fact that boundaries can be really scary, especially when they weren't a part of our upbringing. And a lot of us haven't been shown how to create those healthy boundaries without you know, inflammatory language or without anger or shutting down. Um, I think that yeah. people really struggle with finding the right balance between being, you know, ge overly generous and flexible and being too strict and rigid. And I think this, this comes from being, you know, the fact that being nice seems to be this virtue above all others. And especially as women, I think that we grow up hearing comments like, oh, she would give the shirt off her back or she would bend over backwards. And so women, but certainly not limited to, are raised and praised for being self-abandoning and we get a lot of positive feedback growing up about being you know a good girl or being nice or being liked and there's this unconscious paradigm in us this disease to please um, for myself after moving through a couple of disastrous relationships I realized you know wait a minute how is this any good and it took going to therapy to realize that boundaries are foundational to every relationship um, so where I thought we could go next with this is about learning how to, you know, establish and enforce healthy and professional boundaries. How can we become discerning about when we need to set a boundary and what is some of the language that we can start to adopt? Mm, I love that. Um, so I would say the first thing to look out for, my, my suggestion is, you know, the body often knows before our brain does. So if we get a visceral response, right, you might not yet know why you're feeling it, but you know, somebody's said or done something that isn't sitting well with you, right? You just, you, you get this like visceral kind of shutdown or, you know, the tingles in your chest or your mouth salivates, or you can't make eye contact with them any longer. You want to leave the room. You just, you, you don't know exactly what it is yet. Trust that it's okay to take pause, reflect, 
and decide, like work through it, process it and decide how you want to move forward afterward. A lot of us feel the pressure to have to show up in the moment with the language and the boundaries and even the resources, like energetically, sometimes we're just not in a place to start that conversation. And I think it's really wise when we can be discerning in that, right? Because if we're, if we're not energetically in a place to implement the boundary and, and have the follow-up conversation or aftercare for ourselves, it can kind of just pour gasoline on the fire, mm-hmm. right? So I always say, take pause, reflect on what your body is telling you, get clear or clear-ish at least on what that dysregulation or injury was in the conversation. And then coming to the table, I mean, I teach in my, um, in my boundary course, I teach about conscious communication. So you always want to check in with the person to ask if it's a, you know, ideal time to unpack this ask or this boundary that you want to um, express. Also keeping in mind that a boundary is really a meeting place, right? And I think that's something I really needed to reframe when I was doing my work with narcissism is it's not always about you violated my boundary. Here's my boundary. If you cross it, we're done, mm, right? Like I that's one that. way. That's totally a boundary. Yeah. And it works in the right scenario. But a lot of times it's just, you know, especially if it's a relationship that we want to nurture and we want to grow with and we want to work with the, the person, we don't want it to end. We don't want them to feel boxed out by our, us expressing our needs. It's really nice to actually visualize this meeting place that you both can come to where you can share a little bit with them about yourself, things that they probably didn't know, weren't aware of. We can't assume that people read, read our minds. And and it's an invitation. It's, it's extending a hand and it's providing information from an autonomous place. We're not projecting. We're just saying, hey, when you do this or when you say this, this is how it lands for me. This is how I choose to feel about it. And in the future, would you be open to doing this instead? Because it would really allow me to access more intimacy, more vulnerability, more closeness, more joy with you. And you give them the opportunity to say yes or no. And if they say no, you've got your answer. And you can decide, is this something that is a deal breaker for me or not? And if they say yes... That really affords us the opportunity to get a little closer, right? Yep. So it's, you know, the whole, the whole thing with boundaries and how the lack of boundaries can really continue this like leaky gut, leaky brain, leaky boundaries, like people with chronic pathologies and chronic illness because of trauma, oftentimes it goes back to interpersonal dysregulation. So when we can relearn the mindset of healthy boundaries, the mindset of a sovereign and autonomous, healthy, non-codependent being. That's when we can start to balance our autonomic system, find homeostasis, you know, get regulated, detox, digest all of all of the, you know, beautiful things that come from being regulated. And I think that really does come with, um, come from, Entering the conversation from a place of 
clarity and calmness. Now, with that said, there's an asterisk next to it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Rage and anger is, in my research, it comes from a boundary being violated. So it's not to say that you have to transmute that age, uh, rage and anger in order to implement the boundary because the research shows the rage and anger goes away when the boundary has been reinstated. So sometimes that's when you're like, Hey, this is my boundary. I don't like it when you do this. If you do this again, we're no longer hanging out. It's that part of a boundary for me. And that person has a choice to either show up how you're asking or say no. And again, we have our, we have our answer there. But, you know, when we, when we show up with that rage and anger, we're being authentic, right? There's probably an insult or an injury that's been, you know, too much for us. And that's fair. That's being human. And I really advocate for women to lean into their anger and their rage more instead of transmuting it and suppressing it and thinking that, you know, that, that positivity, spiritual bypassing of toxic positivity of, you know, in order to be, um, in order to be worthy of relationships, I need to always show up in a conscious way. That's just not the case. Yeah. That's just not the case. You know, I think one of the most confusing things is the difference between, you know, compliance and compatibility. When I look back on certain situations, it's so easy to confuse compliance with compatibility, especially when it comes to relationships. What can you say about that? Do you have experience with that in in your past and and in certain situations? Okay. Can we use a different word? Uh, Like give me a synonym for compliance because compliance to me sounds like, like something a government or like the police would expect of us. Yeah. Compliance of government. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when I say compliance, I'm referring to, you know, being compliant to, um, to other people's needs and suppressing our own needs. So complying to, to other people, but not, Mm. not recognizing that we also have needs as well and not bringing our needs to a relationship or not feeling like we are able to express those needs. Mm. Yeah. I mean, Definitely going back to childhood, looking at how much your parents or your caretakers, you know, or your teachers created the space for you to be heard. So I think if we develop this core belief that we have to appease or comply or, you know, um, show up for everybody else, but we're really just not present to our side of that you know, aspect, um, that's brain retraining right there, you know, and that's something that every time I think we have to become aware of what are the somatic signs or the, like the polyvagal responses when we are dissociating from our needs or dissociating from our truth. That's the first step, developing awareness of what does it feel like when I have actually have a need and I'm choosing to not express it because I'm afraid of rejection or being broken up with or somebody reta- like freaking out on me. We have to be aware of that first visceral feeling. For me, it would show up in my chest and my belly. And I would just, it was almost like a, I'd feel nauseous in a sense. 
And, but I didn't know how to slow down, use my words in a certain way, you know, ask for what I need and stand in that with conviction. It's the standing in it with conviction. I think that's the scariest piece for people because on a very autonomic level, there's that deeply engraved, uh, engraved, engraved, <laughs> deeply mm-hmm. engraved um, belief that we could be abandoned, right? We were probably abandoned in our need for communication and our need for people to show up for us, that people that we really loved and, and cared for, we were probably abandoned in those scenarios, whether it's, I can't talk right now, I'm too busy, this is inappropriate, you're being dramatic, why do you, you're always asking for something. It's not always about you. Like think of the ways that we get shut down as children. And we start to learn that it's not safe for me to have needs, right? So we fawn, we become codependent. We show up for other people entirely without leaning into what we need. And that code, that work on codependency, that work on self-awareness, that work on developing the language and the strength to stand in your boundary or to stand in your ass is some of the scariest work that we can do, you know? So if somebody, because again, it goes back to that feeling. I just want to make it really clear. It's so scary and it feels so unavailable to many of us because it's in our DNA to not alienate ourselves from our tribe. Yeah, And it's safer to be codependent than it is to be sovereign in traditional times. Now, very different, very, very different in modern times. Yeah. There's so much truth to that. And, you know, I love that you brought up the polyvagal theory. I was, I was actually just listening to an interview with Stephen Porges just the other day. What is the polyvagal theory and why is it important in the context of trauma? For anybody who's not familiar with polyvagal theory, talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. So um, Dr. Stephen Porges has been studying, you know, the nervous system, neuroscience. He's kind of like the pioneer, um, one of the major pioneers uh, of neuroscience. And he's developed... um, you know, the polyvagal theory, which allows us to understand which state the body or the autonomic nervous system is choosing to go into in response to overwhelm, right? So when we experience something that is too much, too fast, too soon, the body is going to go into either a dorsal vagal response, a mobilized response, or ventral vagal response, uh, ventral vagal not in response to trauma that's put an asterisk next to eventual. And I always like to explain it like a ladder. Think about a ladder. There's three steps. And, you know, depressed people, dissociative people, people that are apathetic, people that are numb, people that choose to check out by, you know, using drugs and alcohol, whatever the case is, no judgment in that. But when we are, when we are dissociating, Um, think of the days when you can't get out of bed, you don't want to shower, you don't want to face the world, you can't talk to anybody, you're in a dorsal vagal response. And think about, because the the autonomic system is connected via the vagus nerve to all of your visceral organs. So think about your kidneys, your adrenals, your stomach, your heart, your lungs, your 
pancreas, you know, all of your beautiful or internal organs are either going to get innervation or not, depending on which polyvagal theory you're in or branch you're in. So if you're in a dorsal vagal response and you're not getting a lot of nerve impulse, you're not getting a lot of innervation to your organs, that's when we might see constipation, poor thyroid function, right? Chronic fatigue. And they get these labels as these dysregulations, dysfunctions, pathologies, but really it's rooted in the nervous system being stuck in a dorsal vagal response. Um, we'll see this in nature all the time. When you see an animal, you cross an animal's paths and they freeze, mm -hmm. right? They stop moving. That's a dorsal vagal response. It's a life-saving response. It's the oldest branch of our nervous system. It's age old, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we want to go up ventral. We want to get to the top of the ladder. Ventral, think about a vent opening up. All the air is flowing out. Everything's moving. It's good. There's lots of flow. That's when we are in our green zone. That's when all the magic is happening. There's social engagement. We're laughing. We're connecting. We're problem solving. We're able to learn. We're able to access memory. Um, that's where all of your visceral organs are being innervated well. You know, your DNA expression is on point, but we can't go from dorsal up to ventral without crossing that middle ladder piece, which is the mobilized piece. And that's where we are present to our emotion. That's when we're present to our physical self, right? And that's what a lot of us try to avoid to do. We avoid the mobilized branch because we're so scared of what it's going to feel like right? That's the crying. That's the rage. That's the difficult conversations. That's the sitting with the fear. That's the sitting with the, the apprehension. It's with being present to the, the, the human side of, you know, this very um, dynamic emotional range that we can experience. We can't always be in the green. We can't always be dissociative. We have to be present. And the research shows that when we actually step on that middle ladder and we actually process the emotion, we can access our ventral vagal state. So think about how good it feels after a clearing conversation. Think of how good it feels after a guttural cry, right? It allows us to actually enter ventral states. So when we can start to identify the parts of us that are showing up, in certain ways, if we're mobilized, if we're dorsal, there's actual ways to hack the nervous system so that we can effectively clear those neurochemicals, be present to what's happening. And continuously, like this is the brain retraining and neuroplasticity work, is that we then change the way we're consistently showing up in life. So we're not always occupying those brain patterns that our brain loves so much. It loves patterns. So it, it will it will stay in a dorsal, you know, apathetic, dissociative response, even though that's not health affirming or, or, you know, ideal because we've survived it. And again, think of evolutionary theory. It doesn't, the body, the nervous system doesn't love taking new paths because we don't know if we're going to survive it. Mm. Right. Yeah. Think of how harsh life was before Amazon 
and deliveries and Uber Eats, right? We had to fend for our food. We had to fend for our survival. Where can we sleep? Where, how, what is the best chance of survival? Well, if we survived it yesterday, do it again today. Again, those things don't apply today. So we can hack the nervous system. We can override these very visceral, like ingrained responses so that we can be in our ventral vagal state as much as possible. Yeah. That was such a great explanation. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, for any of our listeners who are maybe struggling to set better healthy boundaries or are finding that they're swinging between, you know, shutdown and rage and, um, you know, overreacting, what are some recommended resources or trainings that uh, you can share with our listeners today? Yeah. So, um, well, obviously with me, I do all different kinds of trainings related to, um, and that's why I'm a functional trauma therapist in the sense that I'm looking at the tissues, I'm looking at biochemistry, we're reading blood work. Um, but then we're also looking at brain retraining, internal narratives, boundaries, communication styles, um, all of those things. So, you know, if anybody, is interested in working with me, you can go to bewellwithhope.com to find out more. But I also got a lot of um, really great trainings through um, the National Institute of Cognitive and Behavioral Medicine. It's, they have a great, um, it's called Nick Abum, or I think is the uh, NICABM, I think it is. Um, and they're an online training kind of resource for, you know, it's for practitioners and therapists, but honestly, if you listen to the lectures, you'll understand yourself more. Um, also, I really loved Elephant Journal and uh, the Daily Om because there's often little mini courses that are offered for like 35 bucks on codependency. And it's like a 12 week workbook that you can really start to learn about if, you know, if your trauma was more um, early adverse early childhood experiences or complex um, trauma, those courses can be really helpful in us understanding our role in these cyclical patterns and how we can get ourselves out of them. Um, but there's all different kinds of courses online. And I would say you don't have to spend a lot of money. Like, you know, Instagram is a great resource. Everybody's putting out free content, YouTube, just start to search these keywords of communication, healthy boundaries, codependency, trauma, et cetera. And you'll get a ton of resources. Yeah. Well, Cass, I every time I chat with you, I always get super inspired. I, I love hearing you talk about these topics. I feel I can feel your passion. And uh, we're going to have links in the show notes for our listeners to connect with your trainings and your resources. So thank you so much again for joining us on the podcast again. I truly love having these chats with you. I love it too. I love it too. Thank you so much. I'm honored you had me back. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And I really hope you'll join us next time. Mindful Matters is written, hosted, and recorded by me, Elaine Clark. Special thanks to Karen Zorzi, our editor, Tawny Stoiber for the artwork, and our theme music by Bellwitz. If you can, please leave us a review. It helps others discover the show, and we really appreciate it. Let's keep these conversations going over at Blue Matter Project. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. I will stand near and shout.